So for the past few weeks, we have been reading and wrestling with eyewitness accounts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. As I have worshiped and followed and now served Jesus, I still find myself from time to time asking the question, is it really true? Like, is it really all true? The resurrection of Jesus, it is not something that when a person hears it, if they're honest, it's not something that they hear and say, oh, okay, sure, that makes sense. (laughs) No, the resurrection doesn't really make any sense to us. So these eyewitnesses, they offer us some evidence because Christianity is not a blind leap of faith. It is faith, but it's not a blind leap. I believe it's a reasonable faith that is based on reasonable evidence, not proof, but evidence. Now look, some of you, maybe you have never doubted or you've never questioned the resurrection. Maybe you don't wrestle with whether all of this is true or not. That's great. But I promise you, the people around you do. Your family, your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your neighbors. So as the church, we need to be equipped so that we can speak about this in convincing ways because there are so many people around us every day who just need to see a little bit of evidence so that they can come to trust in Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, someone that you hear me reference often, um, just this past week, uh, he got to see Jesus face to face. He went on to be with Jesus um, after a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer. He was actually diagnosed two months after my father-in-law and passed away almost exactly two months after as well. So I thought today might be a good time um, to honor his faithful service over the many years and a lot of what I'm gonna share with you. um, It comes from his teaching over the years about the reliability of scripture, about the historical reality of the resurrection. And you have to remember he comes from a context where he's preaching the gospel in the heart of New York City. Keller once said this, he said, this is how an average person might explain Christianity if asked. They might say, Jesus was a good man. He was a fine teacher. But as the decades went by, his followers began to develop a higher view of him. Later, they began to teach that he was divine. Even later, that he's the son of God. Then even later, the resurrection stories began to develop. And after a couple of centuries of these legends spreading that's when they were written down in the New Testament. So Keller went on to say this. He said, that's a mishmash of what the average person might remember from Religion 101, Philosophy 101, and the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) He said, the only problem with that account is that absolutely every part of it is wrong. So let me show you a couple things. This morning, we're gonna be reading from Matthew 28, if you'd like to start turning to your Bibles there. What you need to know right off the bat, the gospels were not written, the New Testament was not written centuries after the fact. The gospels were written about 30 years after the resurrection. The gospel message had been spread throughout the churches and as the first disciples and apostles were dying off, they knew they had to record it for future generations. So the gospels were written about 30 years after the resurrection, not centuries later. Paul's letters were actually written even earlier starting as early as 15 years after the resurrection. What you need to know is that everything in the New Testament 
with the exception of Revelation, which may have been written about 60 years after the resurrection, everything else was written not only by somebody who was an eyewitness to the events, but they were written within the lifetime of the majority of these eyewitnesses. That's a really important fact that sometimes we miss. Here's why it's important. Like imagine this afternoon, if I were to go around Kingwood telling some fantastic story about some amazing thing that happened here in worship today. I mean, worship's amazing, but you know, let's say something really over the top, right? If you were here and if you knew it wasn't true, you would be able to refute and deny and correct what I'm saying and you should. Y'all, the families of the people that Jesus healed, the people who were fed, the families of those that Jesus raised back to life, the villages where those things took place, the women who found the empty tomb, the 500 plus people who saw the resurrected Christ at one time, those eyewitnesses were alive when the New Testament was being written, when the gospel was being proclaimed, the gospel of the resurrected Christ, as that's being distributed to the churches. If these accounts were not accurate, all of those people were there to deny or refute or correct them. But their eyewitness accounts throughout history have only confirmed what Paul and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and others have said about Jesus. So here's what I wanna do today. We're gonna read most of Matthew 28, and then I wanna address three common objections, three arguments against the historical resurrection of Jesus. And I wanna show you that evidence for the resurrection is trustworthy. I wanna show you how you can speak to those objectives and objections in an informed way. And then of course, as always, we'll talk about what this means for us today. So let's hear from Matthew 28. I'm gonna start reading in verse one. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says this early on Sunday morning as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as he said would happen. Come and see where his body was lying. And now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I've told you. In verse eight, the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. We're gonna to skip to verse 16. In verse 16 it says, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. 
If you want to read about a conspiracy surrounding the resurrected Christ, go back and read the verses I skipped. Verses 11 through 15. You can go home and read that later on today. All right, so objection number one. How do we know that the tomb was even empty? Now, this might be the easiest of all three because there really aren't a lot of people throughout history who have tried to deny, one, that Jesus was a historical figure, or two, that the tomb was empty. But let's see how the Gospels play this out. Now, the Gospels give us a list of women, Marys and a couple other women, who visited the empty tomb. And the women weren't the only ones who were there. When they saw it, they went and told Peter and John. Peter and John went and saw the empty tomb as well. Now, you've heard this before, I'm sure. But here's the truth. If you were gonna make up a story, especially a story as fantastic as this one, and if you're gonna do that in the first century, the absolute last group of people that you would list as your eyewitnesses were women. Like in that culture, women did not have the full rights of citizenship. Their testimony was not seen as valid. The witness of one man would outweigh the witness of 100 women. Not saying this is a good thing. (laughs) I'm just saying that's how it was. And if you're gonna make up a story like this, you wouldn't have a group of women serve as your eyewitnesses. Unless it's true. Unless this is just how it happened. And I have to tell you, that little, that fact, this fact gives me great evidence and confidence in the integrity of everything the gospel writers wrote. Because you could easily make the argument, as deceptive as this is, forgive me, but you could easily make the argument that the gospel writers should have replaced the women in the story with men. If for no other reason than just to make it more believable in their context. Or they could have even just told a half-truth. Just say that Peter and John were there. Leave out the story about the women finding the empty tomb first. But they didn't. The Bible sometimes is unnecessarily true. (laughs) It tells us everything. The only explanation is that they're just telling the truth. And they preached and wrote and disseminated this truth while these women were still alive. It's like they're saying to their first readers, you know, you wanna know more about what happened, well, you know some of these women. They worship with you in your churches, go ask them. They'll tell you all about it. That's objection one. That's the easy one. Objection number two. If the tomb was empty, then the disciples must have stolen the body. So I want you to hear this. This is uh, from Matthew 27. After Jesus was crucified and buried, it says this in verse 65. It says, take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And the gospels tell us that they posted more than one guard at the tomb. They say some when they talk about the guards at the tombs. Okay, so let's think about this logically. These disciples who watched as Jesus was being beaten, who denied him, who abandoned him, the women and John who stood at the foot of the cross as Jesus was being killed, they didn't do a thing to defend him then. They ran. What you're telling me is that a couple days later, they show up armed and ready to take on Roman soldiers with the plan to steal the dead body of Jesus, all so that they could go around and make up the false claim that Jesus was risen from the dead. Sure. (laughs) 
I love the way Keller answers this one. This comes directly from an Easter sermon that he preached years ago. He says, maybe it was a hoax. His followers could have taken his body away. And one thing I loved about his preaching is he was incredibly sarcastic. So, and he had this very deep voice. So when he said that, he said, maybe it was a hoax. His followers could have taken away the body. In the middle of New York City, he goes, right. Sure, that's what happened. He said, and then hundreds and hundreds of liars went on to live lives of compassion, courage, and sacrificial love that changed the world and then they died for a fraud that they committed. No, Keller says, I don't think so. I like to share this from time to time. Um, this is a candy bar that some students found on a mission trip many years ago. Um, I have a few in my office, do not eat one, they're very old. Uh, it's called the Last Supper Bar, as you can see from the picture. Um, it says this on the back. It says, if you only eat one more snack in this lifetime, let it be this one. <laughs> um, it's got some really funny little things on it, like a what would Jesus do scenario. It's got a cut out Jesus, and he's actually holding up the sign of the Trinity. So it's good. But when you flip it open all the way, um, that's when the jokes stop, and it gets really heavy and really profound all of a sudden. Like, I want you to hear what this candy bar has to say about the lives of the disciples of Jesus. This is Bartholomew brought Christianity to Armenia. After converting the Armenian king, he was flayed alive and crucified upside down by the king's brother. There's a couple Jameses, one of the James called James the Lesser, he preached the gospel in Lower Egypt where he was beaten to death with a club. Andrew was crucified in Greece on an X-shaped cross, deeming himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his savior. James the Greater, John's brother, he evangelized throughout Spain and Portugal. Herod Agrippa had him beheaded in Jerusalem. And y'all, it goes on and on. All they had to do was stop. All they had to do was stop evangelizing. The story of Philip, who was also crucified outside the gates of the city of Ephesus, they crucified his two daughters in front of him before they crucified him. And all they said is, just tell us where you put the body. You only sustain yourself through that if you believe that this life isn't the end, that resurrection is coming, and you only have confidence in that if you've seen it. All they had to do was stop. They had a way out. Stop spreading the lie. All they had to do was tell the authorities where they put the body. Listen, I know that there are people who are willing to suffer and die for a cause that they believe in. But who suffers and dies like this for something that they know is a lie? Hundreds and hundreds of liars lived lives of sacrificial love and went on to die for a fraud they committed. Right. <laughs> I don't think so. All right, third objection. Maybe the empty tomb, maybe the tomb was empty. Uh, maybe the disciples didn't steal the body. But skeptics would say the resurrection appearances can be explained another way. And this brings us to objective three, that they saw a vision of Jesus because they expected it and they wanted it to be true. They wanted to believe that Jesus was alive. Now this objection 
is actually rooted in a misunderstanding, not of Christianity, but a misunderstanding of the fundamental teachings of Judaism. You have to remember, all of Jesus' first disciples, most of the people who followed Jesus, they were Jews. And I am telling you, the last people on earth who were or who are to this day willing to believe that a human was divine, that God lived on earth as one of us, the last people on the planet who would believe that are Jews. It is contrary to everything they had come to believe about God. It is heresy. Now, some Jews did believe in resurrection. Many didn't. But the Jews who did believe in the resurrection, they all believed in what we call a general resurrection. That at the end of time, when God returns to judge the world and call his people home, that's when all of God's children receive their glorified resurrection bodies. That's when they go on to live with him forever in a renewed and restored creation. No Jew, not one of them believed or even considered it a possibility that one person would experience the resurrection before that day when we all experience it together. Jesus told his followers on at least three different occasions that he was gonna die and be raised on the third day. And not once did they believe him. They never understood what he was even talking about. They never made the connection. They didn't even make the connection on that Easter morning. They went to the tomb that morning not expecting to find it empty. The gospels make that clear. They went to remember and honor somebody they loved and had lost. Like they were no more expecting to find that tomb empty than we would expect to find an empty grave when we go to visit someone we love that's died. Y'all, the Jewish people believed that Messiah would be a military victor, a strong man like King David. He was gonna come to redeem Israel from their circumstances. He was gonna free them from oppression and occupation and slavery. No one Jesus' disciples included, no one expected Israel's Messiah to be the Son of God, both human and divine, who would die on a Roman cross, rise from a tube, in order to forgive sins and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So these first century Jews expected resurrection and imagined these encounters with Jesus? Not only these individual appearances, you're telling me that more than 500 people at one time had a mass hallucination just because they all wanted it to be true? Both Israel's history and their theology tell us they couldn't have even imagined it as a possibility. They would have rejected the idea as heresy if it hadn't happened to them. Listen, these evidences... They're not going to save anyone. But they can help us to think differently. They can prepare us. And I think that these conversations can bring others to a place where they could at least come to consider that what the scriptures say about Jesus is true. But in the 930 service in the midst of this, I kind of realized that we actually have a fourth objection to address. That fourth objection is can the scriptures be trusted? We'll hear that all the time. And I have to tell you, there's a lot to say about this, but just quickly for this morning, I'm convinced that the scriptures are trustworthy and true. I've read them in three languages for a long time. I'm telling you, they're trustworthy and true, and I'm convinced of that, not because I've read them in three languages and not because I've studied them for 20 years or more, but because, like I said earlier, they are unnecessarily honest. Not only what it tells us about the women at the tomb, remember, in Matthew 28, we heard that when the women left the tomb, they were full of what? 
fear and joy. In the Greek, it's just two words, fearful, joyful, both at the same time. It goes on to tell us later that when the disciples met Jesus in Galilee, they worshiped him, but some, they doubted. Why would you tell us that? You tell us that because that's how the eyewitness tells the story. That's how the first disciples and apostles, that's how they described their faith. That they were full of fear and joy. That they were compelled to worship even as they stood there face to face doubting. And I'm telling you, I find such comfort in that unnecessary honesty because I think that's the most honest way that you can describe real faith on this side of eternity. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that now we see like we're looking through a fog, we see through a mist. One day we'll see clearly face to face. I think this is the best description of what faith is like right now. Have you ever had doubts? I don't see a lot of nodding heads. Have you ever had doubts? I am telling you, you are in really good company. And I'm also telling you that you don't have to have all the answers. When I ask people why they're afraid to share their faith with others, there's a number of reasons, but one that always comes up is I'm afraid I won't have the answers to their questions. You do not have to be able to answer or address every objection. What you need to do is start by just asking yourself, do I have enough evidence to trust? Can I worship even in the midst of my doubts? And I'm telling you that if the answer to that question is yes, Jesus himself says that even a mustard seed faith like that can be used by God to move mountains. The faith of the apostles of faith that worships in the midst of doubt, that experiences fear and joy, that faith has already changed the world. And I'm telling you, God's not done yet. That work continues through you. So maybe the best evidence that we can give for the resurrection, the best proof, the best answer we can give to all of the objections for the Christian faith is to simply live every part of our lives as if this is really true. I had a professor who would always say, he would tell his he was a pastor too, he would tell his church, he would say, you tell me you believe the orthodox truths of Christianity, but you live as if it's not true. Maybe one of the best evidences we can give is a life lived as if it's really true. That's what the first followers of Jesus did, that's how they changed the world, and that's the challenge for us today. And listen, this is a little heavy, we're almost to the end, but um, there's an author named Brennan Manning he once said this, and this is gonna sound harsh, but at least from my perspective, it rings true, from my generation and the ones coming after. He says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. He says, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Someone else once said that the best evidence for the gospel is a transformed life. Seeing somebody as they were and seeing somebody who they are on the other side of receiving Christ and the Holy Spirit. Y'all, we will be faithful witnesses to the resurrection 
when we can not only confess and acknowledge him with our lips, but when we can walk out this door, when we can go out into the world and put on display what we confess to be true by the way that we live. These are just some of the objections that we often face when the gospel meets an unbelieving world. There are others, plenty of others. But being equipped to speak intelligently and reasonably about these, it's it's at least a good start. But just making the argument for the resurrection of Christ, y'all, that's not gonna be enough for most people. We've got to be able to articulate to them what it means that he is risen what it means for us believers and why it matters to a lost and broken world. And the first thing it means is what I've already said. It means that the Son of God, fully human and fully divine, descended from his throne to not only be God with us, but to take on sin and death for us. That he died on a Roman cross, was raised from a tomb, not just to free us from our circumstances, but to save us from our sin. To bring salvation and the hope of resurrection life to the ends of the earth. That's the gospel that we preach here every single week because we can't say it enough. But here's what else it means, and I'll I'll end with this. If the resurrection is true, it means that Jesus can be trusted. You guys know C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. If he's not Lord, don't listen to anything he says because he's either a liar or he's crazy. But if the resurrection is true, then we know which one he is. We know that he is Lord. And that gives us confidence to not only trust what he said, but to truly and radically follow him, to live in obedience to what he said, because we know he's telling the truth. Even when it seems at odds with the world around us, he is telling the truth. And Jesus said a lot of things. But maybe the most important word for us to believe today One of the most important things that he said in Matthew 28. If Jesus is truly risen, then he can be trusted and you can believe him when he says this. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You've heard that before, right? I'm with you always. As somebody who is uh, arrogant enough to think that I can come up with my own translations, (laughs) I will tell you that I would change that translation a little bit. I wouldn't translate it, I am with you. I would translate it, I'm with (laughs) y'all. And not just because I'm a Texan, but because that is the best translation of the Greek grammar. And it's not just funny, it really matters. Because when you read the end of Matthew 28, you have to remember he's not just saying that to me and he's not just saying that to you, he's saying it to us, his body, all y'all. You remember that Jesus is the head of the church. He is with his body always until perfection comes through all eternity. So think about what that means really practically. That means the best way, not the only way, but the best way for someone to have an encounter with the resurrected Christ is to draw near to his body, to draw near to his church. You wanna bring someone to Christ? Bring them to his people. Now I know, even as I'm saying it, there's a little skepticism in the back of my mind, right? Because we are a hot mess. Like today, we're a little hotter than usual, <laughs> but, but we are a hot mess. We do not always get things right, but do you know what we do? We acknowledge what he did there. We acknowledge that we are broken and sinful, that we might actually be wrong. We confess, we repent, we turn to Jesus to transform us, to make us more like him in his image. 
that's the right place to bring people who need an encounter with Jesus. This is the right place for people who need an encounter with Jesus because we believe that when the scriptures are read, he's with us. When the gospel's proclaimed, he is with us. When we gather to celebrate the sacraments of baptism and communion, he is with us. So if you wanna bring somebody to Christ, bring him to his church. And we know that he's not only with us in this place. I think today it's too hot for him in here as well. <laughs> he's with us when we get out of here, when we leave this place. He empowers us to make disciples of the nations as we go. He's with us in our fear and in our joy. He's with us as we worship, even in our doubts. He's with us as we live and serve together in community. Very last thing. This is so important and I know it's important for some of you here today. The crucified and resurrected Christ is also with us in our suffering. Who better to be with us in our suffering than the crucified Christ? And many of you know this to be true. It's a fact for you. You know it's true because Jesus has been present with you. He has comforted you in your suffering and he's done that through the loving care of his people. Y'all, the healing and the hope that we find in one another, that is evidence that the resurrected Christ is truly present with us through whatever this world has to offer. It is evidence that he lives. What a gift we have to offer the world. That good news, that presence, that comfort, and that hope. Christians, if you trust that this is really true, Christian, me, if I trust that this is really true, then let's go live like it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, grateful for a family that even in the heat and discomfort who can hear your word proclaimed, take it to heart and be ready to be sent from this place as we go to do the work you've called us to do. So give us courage and confidence that when we face objections, when we face, even for us, what seems like persecution in this world, that we wouldn't be afraid, that we wouldn't be worried, that we would trust you. That we'd know that there are answers to these questions. And that one of the most, one of the most effective ways that we can give those answers is by living our lives as people who believe it's really true. So equip us with the words to say, equip us with a love that's demonstrated by the way that we live and send us out into the world today to be vehicles of this hope and comfort and peace that you provide. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen.